I extend to you greetings and love, uh, not only from Susan and I, but from uh, the faith family that many of you came from, New Branch. We still miss you. We really do. And uh, we pray for you often and uh, just are encouraged greatly uh, in our faith by seeing uh, you guys stepping out in faith and continuing to serve the Lord faithfully in this, in this area. Um, the gospel is going forward and we're so encouraged by that. Uh, my encouragement is to keep your hand to the plow. Uh, pastors, elders, uh, the saints of Antioch, uh, keep plowing, keep plowing. Uh, the, the soil is fertile in this area um, and people are moving to this area and they need Jesus. And so um, God is being glorified through Antioch Church, um, but uh, we also know that there are a lot of people that, uh, that need to hear the gospel, and uh, quite honestly, that's why you're here. Uh, you're not here so that you'd have a shorter drive, um, although you probably do. Um, you're here because the people around you need the gospel. And, um, and now you can invite them to a church that's closer to where they live. And so uh, keep at it. Keep going. Thankful for you. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn in them to Isaiah chapter 6. Down at New Branch, we have been walking through the book of Isaiah. We began in January and we are not yet to chapter 6. We're actually going to cover chapter 6 next week. And so you get it first. And so don't post it. And if I blow it, you might want to warn your friends. But you're going to get this first. I've been looking forward to preaching this passage ever since we decided to go through the book of Isaiah together. And truth be told, this chapter is one of the reasons I chose to preach through the book of Isaiah. It's one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible. And it is an amazing and incredible vision. I think one of the most awe-inspiring visions that any of the Old Testament prophets ever recorded in the scriptures. It serves really as the commissioning for the prophet Isaiah. This is his commissioning by God to, to go and begin his public preaching ministry to the southern kingdom of Judah. And what, what Isaiah sees in this vision that we'll look at today, what he sees here sticks with him. It's something that doesn't leave him. It's something that fuels the remainder of his 40 years of preaching ministry to Judah. But for us, this chapter reminds us that our holy king of glory still is seated on his throne even today. No matter what is happening down here, he is on his throne even now, just as he was for Isaiah. And as we behold his glory and we consider his holiness this morning, we too, like Isaiah, we are undone. 
we are ruined by the consideration of our unholiness. And yet we're also reminded that by his grace and for his glory, he has touched our lips with a burning coal from the altar of Calvary and has secured our forgiveness in Christ so that we can be cleansed of that unholiness and made clean by faith in Jesus. And because of all of that, we too can take up the mantle of mission to be his herald to a lost world. So let's read Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated, seated on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste, without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this opportunity to gather as your people to celebrate your glory and to sit underneath your word. We ask, Father, that you would speak to us from your word. Father, I pray that you would use me simply as your vessel this morning. And Father, if there's anything that I say that is not in accord with your word, may it May it fall on deaf ears and just be forgotten. But Lord, that which is in accord with your word, may it not be forgotten. May it be driven deep into our souls. And Father, may you bear fruit in our lives and in this community for your kingdom and for your glory. We ask that you would do this and we pray this 
in Jesus' name. Amen. No wonder scholars call this the fifth gospel, because that's exactly what we see in the sixth chapter of Isaiah, the good news, the gospel. Chapter six is a single vision from the Lord. God gives Isaiah a vision of the Lord seated on a throne, just as he did for the apostle John in the book of Revelation. In fact, much of what we see here in Isaiah 6 is mirrored by what we see in Revelation chapter 4. The throne itself, the one who's seated on the throne, the living creatures with six wings. And like Revelation, this is very poetic and figurative, aimed at telling us something about God, something about us, about man, and telling us something about the gospel, the good news of Jesus. The vision itself, as you see it in chapter 6, can be divided into two sections. First, verses 1 through 7 are the vision of the throne room of heaven itself. And then in verses 8 through 13 is the Lord commissioning Isaiah to his public preaching ministry. And so that's the outline this morning. No PowerPoint. I did that for Matt. You're welcome, Matt. No PowerPoint this morning. But it's, it's very simple and straightforward. So let's dive into the vision in verses 1 through 7. In verse 1, he says, In the year that King Uzziah died. And so that helps us to locate this on the timeline of history. When does this happen? It happens at the end of the reign of a king of Judah named Uzziah. Now scripture teaches us that Uzziah was a good king. He became king of Judah when he was only 16 years old. And he reigned for 52 years in Judah. And he was a good king. The scriptures tell us that that he followed in the ways of his father, another good king, Amaziah. And that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And because of this, Judah prospered greatly under Uzziah. Uh, They did well under Uzziah. It was, in many respects, a golden age for the southern kingdom of Judah. However, tragically, toward the end of his life, Uzziah's strength turned to pride. And that pride of Uzziah's led to his destruction. 2 Chronicles chapter 26 tells the tragic story of how Uzziah one day, he went into the temple to burn incense. Now that was a no-no. God had strictly prohibited the king or anyone else other than the priest of Aaron from burning incense at the altar. And so he knew this was wrong. But his pride had taken over at that point. He thought he was above the commands of God. And so he entered the temple, he approached the altar, and he grabbed the censer to burn the incense. And and, and the priests said, they they confronted him and they said, no, king, you're not to do that. You're, You're not to burn incense. That's reserved for the priests alone. We need to do things God's way. Uzziah in his pride became angry at them, and he raised the censer to to attack them, and the Lord struck Uzziah on his hand with leprosy, and he became leprous. 
and they ushered him out of the temple, and the remainder of his days he lived in isolation. A tragic ending to an otherwise good story. A good man, a righteous leader, had fallen in disgrace. And in many ways, what happened to Uzziah at the end of his life is mirrored by what happens in the southern kingdom of Judah itself. The golden age, that age of prosperity and peace, had turned sour. Not only had Uzziah become prideful and selfish, but on the whole, the nation had as well. And so a good king had turned bad. And now that king had died. It truly was the end of an era for Judah. And to make matters worse, that sleeping giant of an empire to the north, the Assyrian Empire, was beginning to rouse from its sleep and was looking upon both the northern and the southern kingdoms with imperial intent. Their new king, Tiglath-Pileser, had come to power and he had begun to set his eyes on Syria and Palestine to the south. And so for Judah, the year that King Uzziah died was a year of great turmoil, uncertainty, and fear. And Isaiah says, in that year, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. In the midst of a time of uncertainty and fear and anxiety, Isaiah's countenance was turned upward to heaven, and he was given a vision of another king, the king of kings. He saw the Lord seated, seated on a throne, the word for Lord there is not the personal name for Yahweh. Rather, this is Adonai, which means ruler, sovereign, the one who has authority. In other words, Isaiah was not to put his hope in an earthly king, but in the sovereign ruler of the universe, the king above all kings, the Lord himself. Isaiah sees him sitting on a throne, and that throne is high and lifted up. I don't know if you saw or watched the coronation of King Charles in England this past year, but, but during his uh, service of coronation, he sat on a throne, and that throne was high and lifted up. It was above all of the other seats there in Westminster Abbey. And that was meant to be symbolic of his authority and his supremacy over all of his subjects there in England. And our God's throne also is high and lifted up, symbolizing that he is the supreme authority over all mankind and over all of the universe. And he says that the train of his robe or the, the hem of his robe filled the temple Monarchs have a train on their robe that falls behind them, much like the, the train of a wedding dress for a bride on her wedding day. Now, I don't know about you, but I've always thought, what is the purpose of a train? To me, it seems to serve no functional purpose or, 
or, or, or function other than to give the maid of honor a job to do, right? Other than holding her flowers because she, she hands her flowers to someone else and what does she do? She goes and fixes the train and she attends to the train so that the bride doesn't fall over it when she's walking. But the purpose of a train is not functional or practical, but rather it is symbolic. It tells everyone present that this person is the most important person in the room. This is their day. They are the one that's important, and they should be attended to. It's a big no-no for the, the bride herself to, to fix her train. There, that's why there's attendance to fix the train for her, because she deserves on that day to be the most important person and to be attended to by everyone else. And that's why kings wear a train, because they deserve to be attended to because of their authority and supremacy over all. And so our king in heaven has a train. And we're told, Isaiah tells us as he sees this vision, that his train, the Lord's train on his robe, is so long and so big that it fills the temple. Imagine that. Imagine how big the, the robe itself must be, or the one who is seated on the throne, when the train, of just the train of his robe, it fills the temple. Every corner of the temple is filled because of just the train of his robe. The picture that we're being given here is that of the transcendence of God. This, this being on the throne, he's not like us. He is not like us. He is magnificent. He is above all. He is the supreme ruler. And this, this sense of the transcendence of God, this otherness of God is, is further developed by the seraphim that Isaiah describes next in verse 2. He says, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. These are heavenly creatures attending to the king, attending to the one seated on the throne. And they're standing they're standing beside the throne, poised as if they are the servants of the king, ready to serve him at his beck and call. We're told that they have six wings, by the way, just like the heavenly creatures who are flying around the throne in John's picture in Revelation 7, Revelation 4. We're told that with two of the wings, uh, they covered their faces because even a heavenly creature like this can't behold the resplendent brilliance of the glory of God. When someone shines a light in your face at night, what's your natural reaction going to be? You're going to bow your head. You're going to cover your eyes. So the seraphim, these heavenly creatures, use their wings to cover their eyes from the resplendent brilliance of God's glory. With two, they cover their feet, probably symbolic of them covering their creatureliness. Like in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses is, is before the, the burning bush, the presence of God is there, and he's told to remove his sandals, for he's standing on holy ground. So with these seraphim, the, the presence of Yahweh 
makes this holy ground. And think about this. These seraphim are sinless creatures. They are created by God, in, and, and they are created with one purpose, to attend to God's presence there in the throne room, and they don't have a sin nature, and so they are without sin, but even their sinlessness does not even begin to approach the holiness of the one seated on the throne. And so they cover their feet, and with two wings they fly. And and these seraphim are, are singing a song, much like the song that we sang earlier. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So they sing about his holiness, and they sing about his glory. They sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. You know, in English, when we want to emphasize something, when we want to to make something intense in uh, articulating about something, we use uh, exclamation marks at the end of a sentence, or we highlight something, or we use bold-faced font. But in ancient Hebrew, there are none of these. There's no such thing as a highlighter back then. There was no bold-faced font, and they did not use exclamation marks in ancient Hebrew. There was no such thing. And so the only way to draw emphasis or put intensity on something is by repetition. And often in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Old Testament, we see a doubling of intensity through repetition. But church, this is the only time in the Hebrew Bible, the only time in the Hebrew Scriptures where we see a tripling of intensity through repetition. We are told that this one seated on the throne is not just holy. He's not just holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. These seraphim are are saying through this heavenly song, which by the way goes on and on and on and on continuously into eternity, that this one who is seated on the throne is the holiest of the holiest of the holy ones. He is the most holy. In fact, commentator Alec Motier notes that God's name in the Old Testament, God's name is qualified by the adjective holy more than any other qualifier to his name combined. Take all of the other adjectives that are used to qualify who our God is, put them all together, and in the Hebrew Scriptures, God's name is qualified by the word holy more than any of them put together. The word holy means set apart or distinct. And what makes our God set apart and distinct from everything else in creation is His moral purity and His righteous perfection. This, more than anything else, is why He is not like us. Again, even the sinless seraphim don't have this kind of holiness and righteous perfection, which is why they cover their feet. This one on the throne is like no other. He is holy, holy, holy. The song continues, the whole earth is full 
of his glory. Just as his train fills the temple, so the entire earth is filled with his glory. The entire, uh, entirety of creation cannot contain his glory. The word glory means resplendent brilliance. It is the sum total of all of God's attributes, all that it means to be God, including His holiness, all of that wrapped up, put together, and then put on display. It is God's magnificence, His beauty, His majesty, His righteousness, His grace, His love made manifest. And when His glory is made manifest, it is a brilliance that even heavenly creatures like these seraphim cannot fully contain and cannot observe and behold in full and live. It is a glory that even creation itself cannot contain. And when these seraphim sing this song about the holiness and glory of God, we're told that the thresholds, the doorposts of the temple shake and the whole house is filled with smoke. What an incredible vision. What an awe-inspiring vision. And think about what a, what a timely vision for the people of Judah. What a timely vision it must have been for the people of Isaiah's day. A good king had fallen in disgrace. An earthly king had died, that had brought prosperity and good times. He was gone. The enemy of God's people, the Assyrian Empire, was being roused from its sleep and was eyeing the southern kingdom with imperial intentions. And so God's people were understandably scared. They were frightened. They were anxious and worried. What would happen next? What was going to happen with God's people, they would wonder. And through the prophet, they are given this vision of their holy king of glory, seated on his throne. He's still in control. He is still sovereign. No matter what is happening on earth, no matter what world events might shake the earth, God is still on his throne He's still in control, reigning over all. And they would be reminded that His holiness is unmatched and His glory is both unapproachable and unfading. And this would have filled them with encouragement and strength and hope and a greater faith in their God. And church, we must also, likewise, we must see this vision. We must continue to behold our God seated on his throne for two reasons one because if we if all we behold is the hope that comes from man if all we behold is the hope that comes from an earthly king the hope that comes from political leaders and human government then we will understandably be fearful and anxious and uncertain about the future world events will shake us to our core and so we need to take our eyes off of earthly kings and rulers and put them on the heavenly ruler. He's still on his throne. Even now, church, 
This is not just a picture of what happened in Isaiah's day. This is a picture of what's happening at this very moment. Our Lord is seated on his throne and the seraphim are still singing that song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. This is our king. And we must see him as such. Do you see him that way? Do you behold him that way even now? What what is it in life that blurs this vision for us? Why is it that this vision is so difficult for us to keep at the very center of our mind's eye? Is it the cares of the world? Is it the sin in the world around us? Is it the sin that indwells in us? Is it our proclivity to trust in our own strength, our own wisdom, and our own plans? Or is it our tendency to put our hope in presidents and politics and government? Is that what makes this vision so easy for us to forget? Is it because we don't saturate our lives with the Scripture? Because after all, that's where we get this vision. That's where we see this. Church, we need to see that our God is still reigning, that he's still in control, that he's seated on his throne even now so that we will not lose hope in the here and now. But the second reason why we need to behold this vision is because when we do, our sin and God's grace come into clearer focus. What happens to Isaiah when he sees this? Verse 5, he said, Woe is me! For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah sees the the holiness and glory of God, and what's his response? Woe is me, I am lost. I actually like the NAS and the NIV. I am undone. Actually, I am ruined. The King James says it. I am undone. The idea behind Isaiah's statement here is, I'm not like that. I see the epitome of his glory. I see the perfection of his holiness. And I realize I'm not like that. I am unholy. I am not like that. That's not me. In fact, I am so not like that. I am ruined. I'm undone. Before this holy king of glory. And he goes on to say, for, for I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. That is him confessing and repenting of his sins. God, I am a sinner. And, and can I just suggest to you that that really is the only logical response when we behold the holy king of glory and all of his majesty. You see, one of the byproducts of seeing a true view of God is that we get a true view of self. As long as we're comparing ourselves to other people, we're always going to be able to find someone who's more sinful than we are. And compared to them, we look like a pretty good person. 
But Isaiah here is forced to stop comparing himself to others. And he is forced to compare himself to this God that he sees. And he says, woe is me. I am undone. You see, if we don't keep this vision of our holy king of glory at the forefront of our minds, then we're liable to get a wrong view of ourselves, a skewed view, a view that elevates our own self-importance and exalts our goodness and just glosses over our sinfulness. But you know, nobody comes away from beholding the God of the universe seated on his throne thinking, yeah, I'm not that bad. I'm a pretty good person. No, they walk away saying, woe is me, I am ruined. So Isaiah confesses his sinfulness and that of the people of Judah. And then what happens? Well, what happens next is a beautiful display, a beautiful foreshadowing of the gospel. Remember, the gospel is good news. And the good news is good news because it deals with the bad news. And the bad news is that we're all sinners. We, all of us, like Isaiah, we've fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And that we are hopeless in that condition. We are undone. We are ruined. That's the bad news. What's the good news? Verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now what precipitates this action on the part of the seraphim is that Isaiah has a need. He needs his guilt taken away. He needs his sin atoned for, covered over. You see, because of his sin, Isaiah is guilty. And he cannot enter the throne room with that guilt. In fact, Alec Motier, Motier, however you say his name, he, he suggests that that's why the thresholds, the doorposts shake to prevent him from coming into the throne room. And, and the same with the, the, the smoke that fills the house so that he can't even see God now, much less approach him. Sin, sin keeps us from entering into God's presence, both now and for eternity. And our only hope, friend, our only hope is for our guilt, the guilt of our sins to be taken away from us and our sins to be covered over or atoned for. And in this scene, that's exactly what happens with this burning coal that touches Isaiah's lips. The burning coal here represents God's wrath against sin, his judgment against sin, and through judgment, purifying and cleansing of sin. The needed cleansing here, it comes from the altar, representing the blood of Christ that comes from the altar of Calvary. And the needed purifying comes from the burning coal, representing the righteous judgment of God, against sin the blood of jesus christ flows from the altar of calvary and atones for or covers over the sins of those who come to faith in jesus 
and the wrath of God against sin. What does it do? It puts Jesus to death at Calvary in our place, bringing purification of sin for all those who would turn from their sins and trust in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And note that the seraphim would never do this of their own accord. They're servants who serve the king. They serve at his beck and call. And his beck and call is go to the rescue of my servant Isaiah. He has a need. The guilt of his sin needs to be taken away. The, 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 his sin needs to be covered over. And so they are instructed to take the burning coal to him. This is action on the part of God who upon Isaiah's confession and repentance invades him with grace and mercy and atonement and forgiveness. Isaiah is being told in this vision, and we're being told as well, that we are guilty sinners in need of rescue. And this rescue is nothing that we can bring about ourselves. Salvation is not something that we bring about ourselves. Left to ourselves, we are like Isaiah, we are undone. But salvation and rescue are of God. This God who is seated on the heavenly throne in perfect holiness and brilliant glory makes a way for the guilt of our sin to be taken away and our sins to be covered over and atoned for. The people of Judah, hearing this vision from Isaiah, they would have known about atonement. They had a day for it, the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur Kippur was instituted by God in Leviticus 16 as a ceremony whereby the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies in the temple and bring two goats with him. One goat, he would lay his hand on the goat and he would confess the sins of the people, symbolizing that that goat was taking the sins of the people. And then that goat was, was driven off into the wilderness. That's where the word scapegoat comes from. He took away the sins of the people. And then the other goat had it worse, right? He was sacrificed. And the blood of that goat was sprinkled over the Ark of the Covenant, representing a covering of the sins of the people. And the idea is this all pointed to Jesus, who stood in our place and took our sins upon himself. He was our scapegoat. And then it was his blood shed at Calvary that covers over and atones for the sins of all those who turn from their sin and believe on Christ alone. And we must see our own need for a scapegoat. And our own need for atonement, a redeemer. And we see that need when we behold our holy king of glory. And so we behold our holy king of glory. And what happens? Well, number one, we are encouraged. We are encouraged and our our faith is built. And we have a greater hope in God no matter what happens down here. Secondly, we are undone. And we have a true view of ourselves And we confess our sins. Thirdly, we are reminded of the grace that is ours through Christ who took that burning coal, which was his own blood from the altar and rescued those who come to him by faith. And then fourthly and finally, 
as a result of seeing our holy king of glory, we are sent on mission. What we find in verses 8 through 13 through the remainder of this chapter is not just Isaiah's commissioning, but ours, the church's commissioning. Isaiah hears a voice from the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? That's incredible. Isaiah is given the privilege of overhearing a conversation among the Trinity. Who will I send? Who will go for us? And fresh off of his vision of the throne room, fresh off of his vision of of having the burning coal touching his lips and taking the guilt of his sin away and covering over his sin, fresh off that vision, Isaiah Isaiah hears this holy huddle trying to decide, who am I going to send to take this message? And he says, me. I'm right here. Send me. You see, a true vision of who God is and what He's done for us will compel us to want to serve Him and be sent by Him. And Isaiah doesn't even know what the mission is yet. He doesn't care. If it means serving you, God, because of who you are and what you've done, here I am. Send me. I'll I'll do it, whatever it is. Church, we need to hear our triune God saying the same thing today. Whom shall I send to Jackson County? Whom shall I send to this neighborhood or that neighborhood? Whom shall I send to Papua New Guinea? Whom shall I send to China? Whom shall I send to Ghana? Whom shall I send to Peru? Whom shall I send to West Jackson Elementary? Whom shall I send to Jefferson High School? Whom shall I send to the Amazon Warehouse? Whom shall I send to this workplace or that workplace? Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? If your eyes are on yourself and your own little piece of the pie and your comfort and your safety, if your eyes are on this world and the cares of this world and the rulers of this world, then you will not say, here am I, send me. You will say, somebody else will go. But if your eyes behold the majesty of our holy king of glory, and friend, if your lips have been touched by the burning coal that comes from Calvary, then before you even know what the mission is, you will say, here am I, send me. Send me, Lord. Whatever it is, I don't care. I want to serve you because I see who you are and I know what you've done for me. I want to serve you. Send me. Friend, the more that you look at the glory of God, in the face of Jesus Christ, the more you will want to serve Him with your life. So look at Him. Look at Him, church, and then go. Now, what kind of mission did God have in mind for Isaiah? Well, to put it lightly, it was not going to be a cushy little ministry filled with fruitfulness. God didn't say to Isaiah, Isaiah, I'm going to send you to Gwinnett County or or Jackson County. And I want you to plant a church, and, and the people are going to swarm to you, Isaiah. And, and, and people are going to respond to the gospel every Sunday, and the baptismal waters are going to flow every single week, Isaiah. Now, Isaiah probably would have loved it if that was the mission that God had sent him to, but far from it. Instead, God told Isaiah, beginning of verse 9, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, 
but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. In other words, you're going to preach to a people who will hear but not understand, who will see but not perceive. Now, we already know what kind of people Isaiah was called to preach to. The first five chapters give us a summary of the audience to whom Isaiah was called to preach. They were a people who had rebelled against their God. They had people who had turned to their own way, turned away from God, turned to their own way. They were a sinful nation, from the wealthy leaders to the common laborers. They had turned against God, and God had already promised them judgment. And so in one sense, we could say, well, of course they won't understand and perceive, because they're blinded by their own sin. And while sin, church, does blind us, and while we have an enemy that does work to blind us to kingdom truths, Although that is true, here God makes clear that he's actually going to use Isaiah and his preaching ministry to harden the hearts and blind the eyes of the people of Judah. Verse 10 makes this explicit. He says, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. You see, God had already determined what he was going to do with Judah. He had already promised that there was judgment coming because of them. He was going to send first the Assyrians, and then he was going to back that up with the Babylonians. And they would attack them, overthrow them, and capture them and lead them away into exile. And so Isaiah's ministry was going to be one of confirming that they deserve the judgment that was coming because they had turned against God. And so he was going to preach to them about the holiness and glory of God, but the net effect was going to be that that would further harden their hearts and further confirm that they deserve the judgment that was coming. And so Isaiah understandably asked, How long, O Lord, in verse 11? How long? He was probably not too pumped about taking on the mantle of this mission. And so he wonders, Lord, how, how long will, will I have to do this? And the Lord replies, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant. And houses without people, and until the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. This is a clear prophecy of the exile of God's people. When the Babylonian Empire finally defeats that southern kingdom and leads God's people away into exile, the Lord is telling Isaiah, this preaching ministry that I'm giving you, that is going to start with you and it's going to continue with the other prophets, is going to continue all the way up to the exile of my people. But as we've seen already in the book of Isaiah, there is a remnant that he's going to preserve. Verse 13, And though a tenth remain, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So God's people will be felled like a tree. And this tree will be burned by the purifying fires of God's judgment, utilizing first the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. But from that tree, from that fallen tree, a seed will germinate, a branch will come forth, and the people will return. But church, we read 
a passage like this, like we should read all Old Testament passages, through the lens of the New Testament because now we know the rest of the story. And so when we put on our New Testament glasses, we see that Isaiah's prophecy of preaching about the kingdom of God to a people who will not understand, who in response will harden their hearts even further, is fulfilled when Jesus himself teaches in parables. Four times in the New Testament, Isaiah 6, these verses that we just read, is quoted as an explanation for why he teaches in parables. That some will hear these parables and be confused and harden their hearts. The Pharisees and the scribes and such. And the Lord says it was by design. While others will come humbly to Jesus and he will teach them. And he will open their eyes to kingdom truths. This whole prophecy is pointing to Jesus. In fact, John chapter 12, read that in your own time, makes it explicitly clear. In John 12, he quotes from these verses from Isaiah chapter 6, and then he says in verse 41 of chapter 12, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. And in the context of John 12, he's speaking about Jesus. So that means that this one who is seated on the throne that Isaiah sees in all of his holiness and glory is none other than Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. It is our Lord. The judgment that he speaks of there in verses 11 and 12, cities lying waste without inhabitant, houses without people, a land being desolate. This not only refers to the judgment of the exile, but also to the judgment that is coming for all those who remain in their sin apart from Jesus Christ. And the remnant referred to in verse 13 is not only the remnant of the Israelites who returned from the exile, but also to the people of God today, the church of Jesus Christ. Church, we today are the remnant of God's people. And where do we come from? We come from that felled tree in Jerusalem. Notice at the end of verse 13, that's no longer in quotations. This is Isaiah After the Lord speaks, this is Isaiah providing commentary that the remnant will come from a holy seed and the holy seed will come from the stump of a felled tree. Isaiah is going to develop this theme throughout this book. You can read more about it in chapter 11, but he's referring here to the stump of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David who became King David the greatest king that Israel had ever known, served long before the time of Isaiah. But he was the greatest king that he had ever known. And he was given a promise as well that that one would come from his seed who would one day sit on the throne of David forever and that his would be an everlasting reign. And it's referred to the stump or the branch of Jesse. So what we have then in verses 8 through 13 is not just the commissioning of Isaiah for his public ministry, but it's the commissioning of the church today to take the gospel to the lost around us. To some, it will harden their hearts and it will blind their eyes and that will only serve to confirm the judgment that God has reserved for them. But to others, to the elect remnant, They will respond to the gospel 
repenting of sins and placing their faith in the one who is the holy seed of Jesse's branch. Now, as we think about what to do with this passage, how to apply this to our lives, there are a number of things that, that I could exhort you and I to do from this text. We could be exhorted to be encouraged that God is still in control because he's still on his throne, no matter what happens down here. We could be exhorted to be undone by our own sin as we behold him in his glory. And, and we could be exhorted to confess and repent of our sins as a result. We could be exhorted from this passage to, to be reminded of the grace that is ours in Christ. We could be reminded to be faithful, be a faithful sent one, receiving this commission from Jesus as Isaiah received his commission from the Lord. But to me, all of those are simply implications of the one thing, of the one thing that we're truly demanded of in this passage, and that is to behold the holiness and glory of King Jesus. Because when we see him, when we behold him, as Isaiah describes him here, and we realize this is not just a picture of King Jesus 2,800 years ago. This is a picture of Jesus today, this morning. Today, church, Jesus our Lord is sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe right now fills the temple in heaven. And above him are standing the seraphim with six wings. And they are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And when we see that, church, it will only be a natural response for us to be encouraged no matter what happens here because he's still on his throne. To be undone by our sin and confess that and repent of our sin. To be reminded of the grace that is ours through Christ, that he took the burning coal and touched our lips by grace through faith. And to be a faithful sent one receiving this commission from Jesus. These actions, these applications will naturally flow as we behold the King in all of His holiness and glory. So let's do that. Let's pray.